Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Well, hi there, and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I was joined by Dr. Suresh Matukamaraswamy. Suresh completed his PhD in psychology at the University of Auckland in 2005, after which time he joined the newly established Cardiff University Brain Research Imaging Centre as a postdoctoral fellow. In 2014, Suresh received a Rutherford Discovery Fellowship and returned to Auckland, where he works in the School of Pharmacy in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. Suresh is a principal investigator in the Centre for Brain Research and the Auckland Neuropsychopharmacology Research Group. Suresh's main research interests are in understanding how therapies alter brain activity and in developing methodologies to measure these changes in both healthy individuals and patient groups. He is the lead investigator in the first ever government-sanctioned LSD microdosing trial to happen in New Zealand. So it was a great pleasure to chat to him and as always I hope you enjoy our conversation and I'll see you on the other side. Hi Suresh, thanks so much for, for joining me uh, today. We're um, in very different parts of the world. I'm here in London and you are, I understand it, in Auckland. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I'm at my, in my office in the medical school at Auckland University. Oh, brilliant. Well, um, thanks thanks again for, for um, chatting to us. And um, as we've been just talking off mic, it's, it's pretty timely because um, you've got a, a, a nice prosaic portfolio of of, um, of research and, and different areas uh, both in and around and adjacent to psychedelic research but you're you're about to add a, a very important sort of string to your research bow in terms of being one of the the first uh, empirical uh, you know publicly uh, sanctioned um, governmentally sanctioned research in, into microdosing so we're, we're obviously super keen to talk to you about that but I really just want mm-hmm. to dig a little bit more into your professional um, background. So how did you move into this space? Because I know that it hasn't been your, your sort of your main, your, your only sole channel of research is in research and psychedelics. So could you give us a bit of a context as to, to how you've come to, to be um, researching what, what it is that you're doing at Auckland, in Auckland? Yeah, well, actually, so I mean, uh, I actually, where I started really was in the UK. Um, I was a postdoctoral research scientist in the UK from 2006 to 2014. And I was a brain imaging scientist initially, uh, studying how, um, how we can measure basically brain signals non-invasively in humans. And, you know, it's a pretty remarkable technology. I, I guess it's quite easy to be jaded by like all these pictures of fMRI scans and um, um, sort of that we can now measure brain activity in humans. But it's actually pretty remarkable that we've, and we've only been able to do this for the last 20 years, right? And the technology is really rapidly developing. But I think fundamentally, when we think about some of these things like fMRI, uh, it's functional magnetic resonance imaging or um, EEG or magnetoencephalography, which is the magnetic equivalent. We don't really know 
exactly what it is that we're measuring in terms of neurophysiology, neuropharmacology. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still a bit of kind of gray territory now. Uh, as an imaging scientist around that time, I, then I became interested in well, you know, the good scientist when he when he wants to run experiments perturbs the system, right? So uh, you want to perturb the system if you want to understand what the um, construction of that system is. You want to manipulate it. And one, uh, it struck me that one good way to uh, perturb the brain system that we're measuring was to give people uh, psychoactive compounds or or just brain active compounds and then measure the results of those. Uh, and, and then we could start to make inferences around uh, what some of the chemistry is behind uh, that underlies some of the signaling that we're actually measuring coming from the brain uh, with these techniques. Uh, so that's kind of where I started in neuropharmacology. And actually, most of our my initial studies were in what maybe the listeners might, might think of as quite uninteresting compounds. Uh, a lot of things that work in, on the GABAergic system, which is the brain's inhibitory system. So I spent a lot of time working... Uh, doing studies on compounds that uh, and drugs that work on the GABA system and measuring different ways that we the different results that that has on brain signals um, and trying to come up with models for how uh, the importance of GABA in brain signaling and then eventually that kind of led me into uh, looking at the, that flip side of GABA is then glutamate right uh, which is the main excitatory compound in the brain. Uh, and glutamate works on two receptor systems generally, and you have uh, the AMPA receptors and the NMDA receptors. And one of the compounds that uh, uh, you can use to block NMDA receptors is ketamine. Uh, and that's kind of was a kind of uh, one of my steps in towards starting to look at more psychedelic compounds. That was your gateway drug. Ketamine. Uh, in some ways, although that might not quite be true. I think we might have started the psilocybin work slightly before the ketamine work. Maybe my mind's getting a bit hazy. This was back like maybe six or seven years ago now, or maybe even closer to 10. I can't quite remember. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. It's been a pretty heady decade in a way. There's been quite – these are quite, um, you know, as you mentioned, they're sort of quite, quite rapidly – developing um, fields of, of research from a pharmacological perspective, but also what you've alluded to is, is the fact that you're, the, 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 there is another variable, which is, which is, you know, Moore's law changing. So the actual imaging technology itself is changing. So it must be a case that you almost, there are these two rapidly um, changing things, both the compounds under investigation and the tools through which you would be investigating them. That's right, yeah. And many of the questions that become around like, oh, geez, is this really the compound or is it that the tools changed and or that there's new tools to try out? So it's like becomes very, yeah, there's a huge amount of work to do. And I mean, one thing that sometimes seems to happen is, and because we've mentioned we're just going to go a little bit more of a deep dive into this because people who listen to podcasts are by no means stupid and sometimes the television programs when they start reporting on on your work and on the work of your your peers it's like they dumb it down so much I, I don't see any reason why people couldn't have some working knowledge of some of these neuro um, imaging techniques and you were involved in one of those seminal studies that the neural correlates of the LSD experience revealed by the multimodal neuroimaging now one of the things is that those the neuroimaging sort of gets blown past 
So I was wondering if we could maybe just like briefly unpack um, a few of those terms that you've mentioned and, and a few others. And if you could, just, it would be great to get a your a, a sort of scientist's eye view of their 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 pros and cons and, and where the main limitations are at at the moment. So you mentioned um, fMRI. Like, how do you explain that? Yeah. So so functional magnetic resonance imaging is um, like when you see it presented in the media, right? You see a kind of a red blob on a black and white grain, right? Uh, and it's kind of represented as kind of uh, this is brain activity, but actually that's not what uh, uh, the fMRI signal is measuring, right? It's actually measuring the ratio of oxy and deoxyhemoglobin in the blood uh, and how that changes with time, right? Uh, because oxy and deoxyhemoglobin have different magnetic properties. Uh, and when you put someone in, in the large field, they cause different differential dephasing, uh, which means that you can actually measure a signal in the scanner. Uh, of And essentially what that's going to do is it's essentially measuring blood flow, okay? Now, when you take a step back from that, normally what happens is that when the brain becomes active and the neurons, you know, become start having energetic demands, the brain's going to start to supply more blood to provide the um, oxygen and glucose required to support that increase in activity, right? Um, so, so what you're actually measuring in functional magnetic resonance imaging is the downstream metabolic effects of neural activity. So we're not really interested in blood flow most of the time, per se, in this kind of context, but it's a, we're using it as a kind of proxy measure in fMRI of the actual neural activity. Now, one of the lovely things about fMRI is that uh, you can measure, because um, of the property of the scanner, you can actually measure that at kind of about kind of every two or, mil, two or three millimeter voxel resolution. So you can get independent measures basically all throughout the brain. Uh, so we call that high spatial resolution, but it has quite low temporal resolution where you kind of get a snapshot maybe every, uh, well, it's changing now with some of the new techniques, but maybe every second to one to three seconds. Um, if I was to analogize that, it's almost like, a camera that's got very high acuity, but it only takes photographs every not like you know it's not continuous, so you get a very high resolution flip book. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's every two to three seconds. Um, but but the key trap there is that it's not just measuring, and the key trap when you're thinking about uh, a drug or a disease, or and a drug in this case a psychedelic drug, uh, is that it's not just measuring the activity of neurons, right? It's actually measuring uh, the blood flow activity. Now, what we also know is that many drugs will actually not just change the neural activity, they'll actually change the blood flow properties, right? So when you give somebody like LSD or psilocybin, their heart rate is going to go up. Uh, mm -hmm. The blood pressure will tend to go up and the heart rate might jump from like 60 beats per minute to, I've seen people go up to like 140, right? Uh, um, plus, um, and so that's going to change the blood flow properties, right? So while you've got this really nice camera, uh, you can't be sure that uh, when you measure a change, say, on and off drug, uh, that the change that you're measuring is necessarily due to the modification of the neural activity because it could also be to the modification of uh, 
of the blood flow in the brain happening independently of the neural activity. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and how are you, how could you sort of unpack how, what inroads you're making to try and sort of move past that, that inference? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so that was, so if I go, if we go back in time actually before the LSD study, so Robin Carhart Harris had published his psilocybin fMRI study, and when they showed this, uh, what appeared to be a reduce in blood, reduction in blood flow with um, psilocybin with fMRI, right? And and they had gone to some ex, to some effort to try to show that um, that this wasn't to do with blood flow, but actually was a neural thing. So, and when, this is where I sort of joined the picture. Was like, well, if this is the case, um, can we use a different imaging technique and try to show the same kind of thing? Uh, and and the different imaging technique we went to in that case was called magnetoencephalography uh, or MEG. And now most people know what an EEG is, right? That you stick an electrode in the brain, on the head, and it measures electric current coming out of the brain. Um, but now by uh, basically the right-hand rule of electromagnetism, right? The electric current that's being generated in the brain is also going to have an associated magnetic field, right? Uh, and if you think about a sort of pointing current dipole, you can just get your right hand out and make a fist and your thumb is the current and your right hand where your fingers are wrapping around, that's the magnetic field that will be associated with it. And what an MEG does is actually record that magnetic field. So, there's, so then what we did was we thought, well, we've already got, Robin already had this fMRI data. So what we did, I think this was in 2012, then we basically ran the same experiment that he had run in the fMRI, but we did it using MEG to see if we could come up with concordant results. And, and essentially, and, yeah, and essentially we did, we saw the same kind of reduction in, uh, in the same kind of areas and the same kind of correlations that he'd seen with fMRI. So that gave us quite a lot of confidence that, um, you know, that you're seeing the same thing using two different imaging modalities in the same experiment, albeit not at the same time, but um, seeing the same kind of, uh, trend towards activity is there is there um i would imagine that in, in the past before the, there, there was a drive of the the, the the technology of imaging was moving along and then it was utilized to research these things in this sort of multi multimodal uh, uh you know intersectional way is there mm-hmm. are you guys in sort of conversation with the the, 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 the companies and, and the, the tech you know the, the, the people involved in that technology to sort of say, you know, what you want. I'm almost thinking like, say, the feedback that, that people who make equipment for extreme sports get, they actually listen an awful lot to the people who are, you know, pushing their equipment to the limits. Yeah, there's certainly a dialogue, but I think what, um, but what happens is there's, um, so like you're talking to me as kind of a, well, I would call myself an applications neuroscientist. I look at kind of, um, sort of uh there's a whole different bunch of scientists who are the more methodological scientists and those are the guys and girls who are working with um, the companies to develop new scanning sequences to increase the hardware improve the analytical techniques and validate them and see there's a whole bunch of scientists working in that area trying to improve the techniques and then after something gets kind of becomes preliminarily validated, then someone like me would step in and go, okay, there's this really cool new technique that could potentially answer this question that we have. And then, 
and then we might use it in one of our drug studies. But you, that's a whole different field of kind of expertise and special. It's a whole career, someone doing that kind of thing. So we wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing that kind of direct method development. That's a whole teams of scientists working on that stuff. You get to you get to play with the toys whenever they're whenever they come out of the factory. Well, if you can afford to buy them, you get to play with them. <laughs> or or if your institution can afford to buy them, uh, you know, because we we we're, we're you know you see these results coming out of the universities, right? And we're kind of some of this stuff gets a bit more public interest, right? These kind of maybe these drug studies, psychedelic studies, but actually there's a whole lot of other scientists working using the same machines, right? So like. I would go into and run my study, come out, and then the next study might be someone studying an Alzheimer's patient, right? Uh, and so there's all these studies happening using the same kind of equipment because these are big these are big infrastructure investments for one of these institutions to make. But I think you know generally it would be this might sound like science fiction, but in many different industries where technology was you know eye-wateringly prohibitively expensive as it's become more widespread, you start to see that, you know, people can make perfectly good albums on their laptop that would have been, you know, 30, 40 years ago needed in a, you know, a massive Abbey Road type studio, you know, you yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> 3D printing, you know, it might sound like science fiction, but I'm very, I think everyone should be very excited to see what happens in, in the imaging space, scientist or not, because, uh, you know, things, things might move even more rapidly in that space than they seem to move. Yeah, I think we've we've seen that happen in the EEG sphere where you're getting these more kind of low-cost systems and we've seen it happening in eye tracking. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of magnetic resonance, we're probably (laughs) not really seeing that happening because that requires a big, super cool helium, uh, yeah, liquid helium magnet to basically run that. So we're not really seeing those kind of large price and availability yeah. reductions happening there no one's people aren't gonna it's, it's, it's not gonna be 2021 christmas present pulling fillings out of people's yeah heads. yeah but but literally you can buy an eg system like a couple of channels right one of these homemade jobbies you know on amazon for a few hundred dollars so there, there you go you see it's, it's just, just go on amazon amazon and you, you can pick one of these machines up. yeah I, I forget what they call they i think one's called a motive right that you can yeah, record great. a few things yeah, uh, but I might want to advertise for them. And, yeah, that's a whole different. Uh, Let, let's we, we, we put in some sort of conflict of interest. Um, yeah, no, I have no, I have no financial interest in them, and yeah, and I have a bit of a skepticism about the quality of the signals that those things record as well. But it's a different. Uh, yeah. So, so um, thanks so much for like unpacking that because it might seem, uh, you know, people think, oh gosh, that's a bit of a deep dive, but. Again, people having some context, I think, allows them to navigate the more general interest that psychedelics and mm-hmm. especially um, um, LSD and, and will come on to microdosing is generating because I think a sort of key litmus as to whether or not a report should be or shouldn't be listened to is whenever you hear something like brain studies have proven and you think, okay, we just sort of stop <laughs> everything after yeah, that because yeah. the, the specificity is... The people that are using these machines and, and using this technology are, are probably the least hyperbolic about it out of anyone because they understand. Yeah, I mean, the, the key the key word trap word there is proven, right? Because we don't prove stuff in science unless we're like mathematicians on a blackboard doing proofs. We uh, fail to replicate things. Now. Uh, we don't find evidence for things, but we don't prove things. 
one one different area that before we come on more to your sort of solidly under your psychedelic work, one, one thing I, I like to ask uh, guests on here sort of actively researching is trying to gain protect against a, a sort of myop, my myopic view of psychedelics is this panacea and this you know great hope for for everyone um, is to to get a bit of a background into other really areas that aren't psychedelic. So I know that you've researched um, t- um, TMS, so transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yep. That is something which, when it's mentioned, uh, especially in like a therapeutic setting, which is more sort of my wheelhouse, it's so emotionally loaded. And I don't know, people seem to carry around some sort of, you know, clockwork orange type appreciation of it. But I was just wanting to... to touch base with the work that you've done and what what if you could sort of outline some of the findings that you've generated and and also if there was one area that you of, of misinformation that you think is out there like what 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 is the big thing that when you talk about that work that, that you find the public don't really understand as well as they maybe should and, and what do you see as being how do you see it tessellating into you know modern uh, mental health care um yeah i mean so yeah, it's quite a it's a quite a bit to unpack there, but uh, so I guess uh, what we do. So you know, there's a kind of bit of a misunderstanding about magnetic stimulation. I think it kind of sounds a bit kooky to some people initially that I uh, kind of the healing the healing power of magnets, uh, but but actually they're very specialized medical machines. Uh, a transcranial magnetic stimulation they do, uh, and it. Um, it was as a depression therapy, transcranial stimulation was first approved by the FDA in 2008 and things don't get FDA approval unless they have efficacy. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so it's a medically approved thing and there's just been many, 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 many studies since, since that time demonstrating that in treatment resistant patients, about 40 to 50% will uh, experience clinical benefit from, when receiving transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is essentially a patient comes into the clinic, they get their brain stimulated for about 20 minutes every day for about a month, uh, and it has quite a high degree of efficacy. Now, unlike ECT, you don't need um, any anesthesia, uh, so the patient can just drive in, receive the treatment. Uh, it doesn't hurt in any way. Some people maybe get a slight kind of jaw twitch or a bit of discomfort, um, and then they drive home at the end, and then after 20 days uh, or a month, they will, uh, can experience clinical benefit. And it's become, it's increasingly growing as an option in medicine. And what we did was in New Zealand, when we started our work, it was just sad to see that basically it, it wasn't being used uh, clinically at all. So really our work was just trying to introduce it into New Zealand, which and it's kind of funny when you look at the uptake of TMS uh, worldwide, it seems to mostly be taken up in private healthcare systems. So in the UK, for example, I think that uptake has been quite bad because you have this publicly funded healthcare system, much like we do, uh, which means that there's always cost issues and innovation isn't always uh, cherished. Uh, so, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, NHS is a great system and I loved it when I was there, but... Uh, Sometimes these things can be, and so NICE recommend it, right? NICE is the UK body. And all our work was trying to do is show that in New Zealand, for patients who have treatment-resistant depression, that they can get TMS therapy, they will turn up, they will find an acceptable therapy, 
as, as in like there's no stigma it's doable uh and that so it would have efficacy and it would be acceptable and it would be affordable in the new zealand context uh and so and we're trying to promote the use of tms as an alternative therapy for those who suffer from depression because some patients who suffer from depression do not like the medications that they have to take so sure. this provides an alternative to them and so we I see depression as um, I work obviously in clinical trials of depression as well is that uh, and nothing seems to work for all patients <laughs> so yeah. really it's it's, a, it's about providing patients options mm-hmm. so so transcranial magnetic stimulation could sit beside uh, pharmacotherapies and mm-hmm. um, counseling and talk therapies as another option for patients I, th- I think just people generally knowing that, like, if they have major depressive disorder and, and their treatment, you know, they're classified as treatment resistant, just knowing that there are other options, uh, even if they never avail of them, you know, so knowing TMS exists, if in the future they use psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, might, I think, yeah. help people to feel like they've made an informed decision as opposed to being. Railroaded into the oh well this is the hail mary because you know nothing else has worked for you and vice versa if people feel like they don't really like the the concept of of um, the phenomenology of psychedelics and want to try something like TMS you know I, I think that like you say those options even over and above just their 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 pure efficacy when they're just studied themselves the fact that they work in some there's a sort of pantheon of treatments. As opposed to that indicating that there is, you know, nothing's working. It's more like you say, we, everyone, if you're resistant to, you're sort of atypical in a way, and we do have more than one option, so people feel less choice at, at the very least. Because I think autonomy in terms of your treatment, when you're when you're managing something as severe as 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 major depressive disorder, now it's really important for people, especially if they felt hugely disenfranchised and powerless. You know. Yeah, I I agree entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just, it seems to have like, it's, it's good that you guys are bringing that into, you know, New Zealand context and, and I'm pleased that you're getting such good sort of uptake and, and good feedback because it does, I'm glad that you mentioned ECT because it, it does seem to get tarred with the same brush of something mm. unnatural. It's a much more, much more acceptable treatment than sure. the ECT. Yeah. So it's, it's a nice, um, uh, definitely like a different, different kettle of fish altogether. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm conscious that I've sort of been like, you know, basically like firing, you know, please unpack this, please unpack that. And, yeah, and, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I think it's good for people to have some sort of working knowledge of these things. Um, so moving away a bit more onto your, your current study, um, and as we've been sort of corresponding over the last wee while, there was, uh, and this is your study into, into microdosing, uh, that, that's mm. upcoming. There seemed to be a little bit of, um, you know, the inevitable policy uh, discussions and having to do some sort of administration. So I'd love to hear, like, the nature of the study and also maybe a little bit of a, a sort of runway into, because it's not like you guys thought this up the other day and then everything went hunky-dory. What's been the journey? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the- you know, so, yeah. So, I mean, I... I left the UK like five years ago, right, and uh, mm-hmm. set up my lab group here. And we 
we've been doing ketamine work really for the last three or four years. And that was really to find our feet and to establish our like rapport with our my own my new institution and the ethics committees and you know the various people that you have to deal with to, just to get studies done and that was challenging enough uh, um, and to for me to come back and just go straight into say trying to do a psychedelic study would have been uh, probably impossible in a country where nothing like that had been done before um, mm-hmm. so then having done all that stuff i think it was probably about oh it must have been over a year or so ago uh, i still you know, having established a good, strong research group, it's like, well, maybe we should try and do some psychedelic studies uh, now because I'd already been doing them in the UK. So I thought it'd be nice to, there was in a position where I could try to do that. Um, and I had enough other things going on because the, the other thing, of course, as a scientist is you do have to like be productive, right? And I, you can't just uh, chase doing a psychedelic study and do nothing for three years and then produce anything because your institution is Sorry. Yeah, well, it's not. It's it. It's not that like. It's not like that cutthroat, mm-hmm. but it's not wonderful to be. Yeah, you want to have a kind of a portfolio, right? Sure. Uh, and so, about a year, or probably just over a year ago, we we thought. Well, I thought. Well, maybe we can try and do some. Uh, maybe try and do a psychedelic study in New Zealand, and see what happens. And no one's ever done anything like that before. So that was interesting so i reached out to actually someone who moderates a community group on the topic and he got back to me and we started having a few conversations uh about whether we could potentially you know whether it was feasible to do research like that and then a donor came along uh through that contact and um you know and kind of gave, gave us a bit of seed money just to think wow maybe we could do research here and maybe we could also find some money to pay for it uh Mm-hmm. So that got us thinking about what we could do, and we figured, and this mic, and that was over a year or so ago. And the microdosing uh, area has moved along very rapidly, right? Uh, um, but at that point as well, there was almost no data out, and we thought, well, let's, why don't we try and do a microdosing study? Because um, there's kind of some really interesting scientific questions in there that we thought we could uh, ask. Um, so. Then we, yeah, for about oh, it's almost a year ago, we started writing a protocol to uh, uh, develop this into a study. And what's what's could you could you outline like the current like the, the protocol in terms of uh, what yep. the study actually going to look like from this sort of yeah. Uh, so um, one of the, one of the things there are a couple of studies looking at microdosing. Uh, in laboratory contexts where you basically, where people have been getting um, volunteer, healthy volunteers, I don't think there's any clinical patient studies yet, uh, getting healthy volunteers to come into the laboratory, they're giving them microdoses and recording various bits and pieces, right? Um, and that's really interesting as a good start. What we wanted to do, and I guess what's caused us a bit of problems is that, you know, when you read the anecdotal reports of people doing microdosing, I guess I see it as a kind of lifestyle drug. Um, mm-hmm. They, um, you know, it seems to be very context dependent, mm-hmm. and it, and it's about them taking the thing and then living their lives, right? And and uh, and I didn't feel that you could really capture that in in the lab. No. 
those those kind of benefits. So that meant, well, how do you how do you do this study then, right? And and the what it means is you've got to basically prescribe people a psychedelic, uh, a microdosis of psychedelics, so that they can take them at home. Uh, and so that's what we tried to do, uh, and try to get through our regulatory system was to be able to. Uh, in a controlled and rigorous way, be able to prescribe, uh, in this case, we're going to do LSD to participants to take home and under, there's all sorts of um, procedures in place to make sure that they're not naughty, essentially, uh, um, to try and study it, I guess, in the wild, right, in an ecologically valid way of doing it, where they basically, they take double randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, but with people doing it uh, out at home, basically. And how did you, how have you, you've got 40 male volunteers, is that, or participants, is that? That's our, that's our aspiration to do that. Well, we haven't even started yet, right? We've just got uh, the approval. And uh, you've we're starting to purchase the drug now. Uh, do you know what, it's because I watched, uh, uh, as we were talking off, off mic about, um, uh, the, uh, the sort of the, the New Zealand media picking this up and they made it sound like it was, you know, everything's nearly finished and, you know, that they, so they wanted, they were really looking to get results out of you and, and it was like... <laughs> God, yeah, yeah. It's really important to appreciate how slow science moves, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't, they don't, I don't think their news cycle is, is working on the basis that no no content has to run over three minutes you know so uh, yeah that's right yeah so i'm thinking of, we'll start the study and probably by the time we get all the contracts with the companies and all the procedures set up maybe three or four months we'll start up and it might take a, well over a year to collect the data what regimen are you planning on placing people on in, in the, in the um, study group yeah it's going to be the fetamin protocol basically um so it's going to be yeah, that, the Fenneman protocol is you microdose one day, then you take two days off, and then we, and then we repeat that over six weeks. And why why you start? Is that like an arbitrary starting point, or is there some actual you know real solid science as to why that? There's no be? solid science behind it, apart from I think uh, Fetterman's observations that that seem to be a. Uh, there are other protocols out there, I believe, uh, but that seems to be one that people are doing. So, uh, it has an interesting. It has an interesting patterning to it because you can then compare on and off days as well. No, so, no. so that that creates a kind of interesting, uh, yeah, could create some interesting data, I think. And and how are you going to? How are you guys recruiting people to the study? Um, I guess we'll, we'll advertise subtly. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, because you you know, like when you run a study like this, there's. There's a lot of exclusion criteria, and I'm not going to go through them all because I don't want people listening to it and gaming the system. Uh, but there'll be subtle advertising, and put it this way, many more people will be excluded than included. Yeah, good. And I suppose it's just this has come up comes up a lot, um, you know. And I was um, chatting to Torsten Passy about this, and he was saying, like, anyone reasonable, anyone who's a, who's a scientist, not an activist, like you're a scientist. It has to be completely okay to be disabused of the notion of microdosing as a thing because it could just be another really like an artifact of the placebo effect absolutely losing the run of itself amongst, you know, <laughs> people in Silicon Valley. Like it, it is, is it feasible in your mind that this could just be a total cultural artifact? 
absolutely I'm, I'm absolutely open to that possibility <laughs> but you know like it could totally be but but what i would stretch that even further and i would say that it's entirely possible that all the clinical effects of psychedelics that are in the literature are all a placebo effect wow and because everything every single one of those studies the blinding has not been effective yes so that that is that is this ongoing issue so you know if you if you go to the highest standard of evidence that we have which is the cochrane system of evidence the evidence for psychedelics in psychiatric medicine would be low because of that that, that, because of uh, that yeah it's it's a it's a massive compound in the whole literature now that's one of the intriguing things about microdosing right and that's why i'm scientifically interested in microdosing because you can actually blind that psychedelic study if you're truly at sub-threshold doses people shouldn't know and and the and of course it's it's so it's, it's easy to just double blind it because you can legitimately say nobody nobody knows and then we'll just we've really isolated the variable of is this actually making a positive difference that's right yeah and, and you can test you can test people to see you know at the end of the study you ask them to try to identify which substance they had been on the last six weeks and so you can run some stats to see whether they were better than chance at guessing. Uh, so, and then you can do some post-doc stuff to, to establish that your blind was effective. Mm. I had, I had a look through like, cause like you say, there's not the clinical research is, is not really sort of not non-existent, but it just, it hasn't been done. And the most, the most, the most interesting one that I found that was okay. It had that, it was a, the one motives and side effects of microdosing with psychedelics among users. And, I don't know. I just I just wanted to highlight a few points from that the study. This was like a, a thousand people. I'd love I'd love to get your thoughts on this because oh, was this the um, paper by Vince Polito's group? I don't know. Let me just bring up the author. But it was done fairly recently, and it was the one where they used um, some online uh, platform, and they got like a thousand responders. Um, it's overwhelmingly male, like eighty four percent male. I, I'm I'm going to try and bring up the name of it. Do you know what? I don't have it to hand. I just can't put my hand on the name of the author, but I'll put it in the show notes. Um, so, you know, anyone can who's listening can just go off and, and have a wee, you know, read of it. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the, on the sort of more qualitative stuff? Like what, what, have you, what, what have you picked out from the qualitative data, the better quality qualitative data for, for the microdosing? Um, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I think it's, a, I think it's all really intriguing, right? It's like, uh, the, there was a study by Polito, which oh, they did a kind of systematic study of, uh, it's called, the title was a systematic study of microdosing psychedelics. And they seemed to show some uh, improvements in mood and well-being, but also some negative effects that people uh, reported that, you know, it wasn't always positive. Uh, and some of the things that they, one of the things that was interesting in that study was that some of the things that changed weren't the things that the participants were expecting to change, which which they argued, which they used to argue against that it was entirely a placebo effect. So that, that was kind of interesting. I thought that they'd done that as a measure. So uh, it's still not the the controlled trial, but it's kind of interesting. So that there seems to be like you know when you look at the quality of data, it seems to change all sorts of things, right? And different people report different things. So it seems to be at least this, this, the self-reports are highly variable in terms of the um, aspects that they seem to be tapping into, which means that we have to measure a bloody hell of a lot of different things, right? Uh, 
I, I love that. I love that um, you, that was the sort of opening gambit in terms of opening up, the, the, you know, the New Zealand strand of uh, of researching psychedelics. It's like, hi guys, uh, I was wondering, could we research this? <laughs> We're just going to have let people take psychedelic out in the wild. And, you yeah, know, well, yeah. So one of the things I spotted was in our um, that we was that we were uh, because we have our own legislative system, right? Uh, and we have our own laws control. And I don't know all the laws in all the countries, but one of the things I spotted in our it's called our Misuse of Drugs Regulations Act uh, was that we were uh, that in New Zealand you're allowed to prescribe Schedule A drugs to people, uh, which means that you're allowed to prescribe them and they can take them home. So I took advantage of that in our. Uh, approval to say actually this isn't illegal to do this right uh because there would be certain legal systems where you just couldn't do it under our legal system the way our legislation is written you can you can prescribe class a drugs to patients uh which means that they can take them home which means that using that as our legislative basis we were able to get our study through provided that we could uh have adequate controls and for things like people diverting the drug or not following schedule and all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I've noticed has come up from that, that qualitative study, who's the author's name here, I forget, was that <laughs> it was really difficult when they're doing these sort of self-reports to have any sort of degree of confidence over the actual doses that people were taking. So it was very difficult to draw any sort of inferences. How are you guys going to address that? How does that, what does microdosing through your study actually, you know, technically look like versus someone who's just cutting up a blotter and they're home and then writing it? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a a huge issue, right? Um, So we are going to just stick with 10 micrograms of LSD uh, as as probably verging on the the slightly lower side, I guess. but yeah, like because a recreational user has no kind of real knowledge of what's in there, right? At that kind of uh, accuracy around exactly what it is that they're cutting up, because you're talking tiny doses, right? We want to go with a relatively low dose so that we could really make sure we have a sub perceptual threshold. Because once you get up to twenty, then it's definitely become start like to become identifiable. But then, of course, users what they do is they are able to because we're not able to do one thing that users can do is which actually titrate their dose. Cause you know, they find all oh, that was, that was too much. And then they, and then they sort of tamp it down. So we're not able to do that, which makes it, uh, isn't what users do, but that's just part of running a trial. Uh, yeah, like, Got to standardize it somehow. I think like if anyone yeah. wants any sort of scope for how absolutely variable, what constitutes, uh, you know, the terminology around micro macro mini doses, just go on Reddit, yeah. and there is yeah, someone, yeah. guys. I'm new to the world of psychedelics. I'd like to try some LSD. I was wondering what you guys would recommend for a starter dose, and you'll just see the answers at one. <laughs> It'll range yeah. from saying, "Don't do it, Christ." I mean, for you know, just, you know, take 500 mics and close your get on a flotation tank. You know what people are just what constitutes micro to one person is definitely not to somebody else but it absolutely needs that standardization before anyone can say yeah, anything. yeah and of course you know the whole the whole title microdosing is obviously a misnomer right because it's not microdosing it's decidosing I'll explain that well because micro means that you would be taking you know uh one millionth of a dose right right okay 
So that's that, that's that homeopathy. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, so it's not actually microdosing, right? It's it's decidosing, which is a tenth of a dose, or maybe centidosing. Um, right. Okay. So so actually, the whole the whole title is a bit of a misnomer, <laughs> but but it's 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 what's stuck, right? One of my academic colleagues, who's uh, I think a pharmacist, pointed that out to me. Yeah, you should. That's it. Just move over, Fadiman. We've got a new term in town. That dissy. Yeah, no, no, like it, it's a good, it's a good term. It sounds cool. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the people that are interested in homeopathy are really annoyed because they're they're the true microdosers. They, they. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, microdosing, microdosing could be homeopathy. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we could see. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I suppose one thing that I always come back to when I'm talking about placebo is if if I don't allude to this, people think, well, you're just automatically being derisory or that somehow placebo itself isn't a valid mechanism for healing. And I don't think you need to untether yourself from any type of scientific materialism to give placebo its its due. I believe that um, the, the body's ability to like biologically respond, you know, initiate cascades of healing, like biological response to care is, is a, is a vast, is about as well understood as psychedelics. <laughs> so I'm wondering yeah, yeah. How, do you, how do you conceptualize scientifically what the placebo effect is? I mean, it's, it's yeah, I, I, the placebo, I mean, we know this, we don't, we, I say we know that's probably an overstatement, but the placebo effect is a real biological response, right? So you can there are imaging studies on the placebo response, like so it's not like uh, it is in the brain, I guess. So and I, you know, like as a someone who runs clinical trials, the placebo response is a pain because like it's hard to show efficacy necessarily on top of the placebo response. But when you then switch to clinical practice, the placebo response is amazing. That's what you want to take the most of, right? The more environmental factors you can put into therapy to enhance any uh, setting and placebo response that you can and care, you want to do, right? Uh, If you've got an efficacious treatment, then anything you can do to amplify that by adding to the placebo or like uh, the placebo aspect of it, because any treatment is going to be comprised of both real treatment and expectancy effect of that treatment. So you actually you want to amplify that. So just that, what just came to me there, Suresh, when you were you were mentioning about um, the sort of expectancy and, and all of the, the context in which it happens is when you see macrodoses being being administered, um, and I've volunteered at places in, in Holland where it's been given legally, that the ceremonial aspect, you know, definitely, in, in my opinion, is very surely impacts the. Um, the, the, the metabolism, the response that people have, how, how phenomenologically mm-hmm. performed things are. Mm-hmm. So how are you guys going to try, I know because people are out in the wild living their lives, how are you going to standardize the way that they administer it to themselves? Because I would imagine that if you took 1,000 people and said, or you know, 40 people in your case and said, okay, take microdoses, some people might take it you know, with their morning tablets without realizing, some people might make more of a thing of it. Like, is there... Yep. The placebo effect is this cons- not concern, but definitely a, a sort of confounding variable that you've really got to consider. How are you guys going to try and standardize the administration if people are giving it themselves? Yeah, so the administration, uh, uh, so what's going to happen is they'll receive a text message in the morning. Uh, 
in order, so so we want to standardize the timing, right? The day and timing of it is so they'll basically receive a text message in the morning, and then and then they'll basically following that text message, then they'll administer the dose. Uh, and uh, so and actually, the way that we're going to do the dose is it's called mobile mobile directly observed therapy. So essentially, when they take the dose, they're going to video themselves doing it. Um, so we're going to train them on how to actually give themselves the dose. Um, and then, so basically they'll, they'll take the dose in a kind of standardized way that they record and then they send us the video for verification purposes. Uh, so this is to mean that we can track the adherence to protocol because we want to know that people are doing it when they should be doing it, how they should be doing it. Uh, and so we'll be able to measure, uh, whether they are actually following the protocol and people that won't follow protocol will get basically booted off the study. Uh, um, and then, and they will be able to meet, sort of standardize how and when they're doing it as well. Uh, so that's about as much as you can realistically do. Sure. Of course, without being, you know, getting too sort of Orwellian about it being big brother, and you know, setting up CCTV. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and that also means that we'll be able to uh, control because we actually give them, we'll be giving very limited doses out and they have to come back into resupply and then and they'll have to when they do the videos there'll be barcodes and and all sorts of like <laughs> heading on to to make sure that yeah everything is uh yeah but sir you guys are really um i'm really delighted to hear that especially given that i'm 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 a soft spot being an australian citizen i'm so glad to see you're pushing the pushing things forward because when you mention that and you talk about this sort of this vanguard of, of utilizing not only just giving people drugs but um which would have been unheard of for an average second you know 10 years ago it's like the, a government sanctioned text message ostensibly is going to come through to your phone and say it's time to take your schedule one drug now it, or the placebo <laughs> or, or the placebo um yeah. but but that seems to be something which could really scale. And okay, there's a lot of work for you guys to set up the barcodes and do everything now. But once that's all set up and in place, the scalability of the amount of data that you can generate, if you can automate a lot of these systems, you know, if you can send one text message out through a client record management, you can send a thousand, you know, it really mm -hmm. seems to open up this possibility for much, much bigger and therefore more uh, robust findings in areas like this i don't know if that's something which is, is on your mind that you're yeah it, it's something i've kind of i haven't really at the moment we're just doing it in a kind of low tech and it's a slightly manual way right of doing it uh, but but i think there might be technical because one of the, the, the when you if, as you move into this kind of prescription model what we're trying to do you want there's you want to avoid what's called diversion right which is basically people just taking the drugs and like there's big concerns around like that people might just take 10 doses at once and basically trip, right? Uh, and that's not what we want to happen. So that's a big concern that we had to address um, in getting the study over the line. Um, so so what you want is people to follow protocol. Now we're doing it with this, this kind of video uh, IT system, which is a good start. Um, but I think there's probably going to be more technological. And we're just trying to do it kind of low tech, but, and, you know, but I think there's probably going to be technological systems. I can imagine automatic dispensing type things uh, that could start to address some of these things. So I think there'll be 
probably technological solutions down the line so that it could be deployed in a much larger scale with this manual intervention. And anybody listening who's, you know, you get a lot of people from different silos of expertise that want to help. You don't have to be a neuroscientist or a multimillionaire to, to lend your, uh, you know, either skills or, or resources to this movement. Cause I'm sure there's loads of people who work in, you know, user experience or, or app development or, or, you know, actual physical technology, things like that, that could. Yeah. I'm thinking it'd be some kind of physical technology that could, uh, that could solve these kind of problems. Those, those, those automatic dog just for people that can like have apps that control the, the doggy food dispenser thing when you're at work. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But, but that's not my domain, right? I'm, it's not my... Uh, and no, I'm, and I, to be honest, I don't have the great entrepreneurial... Uh, you're, getting a bit, you're getting a bit Skinner's uh, uh, yeah, word box there. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's, um, that's fantastic. So, I mean, looking a little bit ahead, I'm sure you're so busy, it's just a case of getting, getting everything up, up to code. But where do you see... Um, uh, where do you see this... The, the, let's just talk about microdosing that strand of research where would you ideally like to see this go from a, a scientific point of view after the study yeah i mean so it's gonna very much depend on the results right so i, I see two branches right the, the first branch is that basically it's all just a placebo effect and that's the end of it right? and us and a couple of the other studies that might happen over the next year or two you know will will hopefully address that as a kind of uh, as a question now so if it just does die in the water then that's perfectly you know that's the way science goes if there is like real signal in there right which you know all the anecdotal reports suggest there should be then you would be looking at okay what is that what is that signal which in which domain is it relevant and i guess following down that pathway i would see that you'd be then looking at potentially some kind of clinical indication for where you might want to deploy that provided that it can be done safely and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be what I would see as the next kind of steps after that. So it's, it's very much a case of what is the most significant finding? Is it performance enhancement, mood enhancement, you know, uh, yeah. some sort of affective uh, change, and then the research follows, the research follows wherever that yeah, yeah. I think I think the indication should follow the data, right? uh, and and so, but I mean, you know, based on what like uh, based on what users report, the the people often report uh, mood and well being. So that obviously creates the kind of the mood disorder type things. And then um, if it's in terms of performance, then uh, you know, in concentration, then maybe some kind of um, attentional disorders or cognitive disorders if it's something along those domains so mm-hmm. um well i think that's I, I wish you guys all the very best with this study and i think um make sure to smell the roses and give yourself a up on your team all pats on the back because um to get this over the line uh, i'm sure it was no easy task and uh, oh, the hard we're not hard even hard. over the, we're not even over the line right? we're just a, at the very beginning <laughs> yeah Maybe, maybe, maybe you'll do the study, and it's like, oh, this is placebo. Oh, thank Christ, I can't go through all that again. I don't want to do it. Well, you know, I think, I think, you know, because this is the first psychedelic study that New Zealand's ever done, right? So I think we've kind of, 
you know, I think this was the hard one to get over the line. I think subsequently it'll be easier because we're kind of setting, you know, that that's our precedent. And I think it's the same in all the countries where psychedelic research has started, that you'll be some institutional and uh, regulatory resistance. Uh, so I think we've kind of hopefully over that now. So uh, subsequent studies might be, may be easier. And it, on the point of um, resistance, well, the regulatory stuff, how have you found um, the uh, Kiwi media in relation oh, the Kiwi, to... Yeah, the, the Kiwi media has been fantastically supportive of what we're trying to do. Uh, they've been really positive. Uh, the, the odd one gets a bit kind of more like silly, but generally I think the New Zealand media has been really supportive of uh, of what we've been trying to do and they've been very active and, enga- and engaging with us. So uh, from a media perspective, I think that's all been going well. And I don't think... I don't think, you know, things have been, I don't think there's much been much, my institution has been very supportive of what we're doing. Uh, The government's been slow, but, you know, like, but I, you know, in some ways that's their job as well, right? To like, you know, uh, to make sure things are done correctly. Well, it is their job, right? So, uh, so that's just the way it has to be. well, that's good. To, it, it's nice. I'm sure it's nice to not have to fight on the media front the way maybe people have in different countries. You know, I, I, when this was really just breaking through, it's it seems to be that 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 turf has been turned over at least a little bit, so people are more. Yeah, responsive. I think the big challenge now is really around the funding for the research because yeah. it doesn't happen cheaply, and that's that's probably we've got enough to get ourselves started, but that's probably the biggest barrier we have now because, like a. A government can approve the research, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to put money into it, right? Can you speak at all to figures like what what? Because people, I don't think people have any sort of handle on on what this stuff actually costs. Like, what's what's a figure that needs would need to get this over the line? Uh, probably. So, if you're talking pounds, you probably need like a hundred thousand pounds. But that's like doing it like on a on the what we call the sniff of an oily rag right Uh, kind of like if i run a government funded clinical trial that's more like you know and i'm fully costing everything to my institution with overhead you're talking more like uh a million but we're running this on the sniff of an oily rag uh so we that's our game is more in the kind of hundred thousand pounds type Well, I think when when those, I mean, it's not by any means small sums of money, but the way that I I sort of think about it from a philanthropic return on investment, you know, okay, it might be placebo, but it might literally, you know, springboard an entire, you know, new uh, sort of strand of research in a new continent, you know, in a continent where it hasn't happened before. So I think yeah, yeah, if there's yeah. any tiny little support that. That I can basically just put that out there, and, and we'll be putting all your all your contact details, etc., um, so that everybody philanthropic people are welcome to get in touch with me, and we engage with them, and that's how we've got enough to get ourselves going. So uh... mm-hmm. it's functioning. This space is functioning a little bit like a startup space. <laughs> you know, you can't yeah, yeah. Them. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I would love to see government start to fund more of this research, so that's not so. At the moment, the whole psychedelic field is really dependent on sort of uh, philanthropic money. Uh, but it would be really nice to see 
uh, and actually funding coming through kind of the large government funding bodies. Because I think, you know, like funding is like, you know, we don't trust everything that drug companies fund, nor should, you know, and, and that creates a kind of a bias that we're suspicious of. And nor I do think should we be entirely uh, unsuspicious when everything is philanthropically funded. Uh, so it's, it would be nice if there was a, um, a varied system of funding models behind the research. And I, th I think that would make the whole field stronger. If, um, multimodal. Yeah, multimodal. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if, if governments were funding the research, that would be great because then you would know that certain standards around because when you get a philanthropic grant, you don't have to actually compete for it. Uh, you just kind of, pit, it's more like VC money, right? You pitch an idea and you get it. But when you write a research grant through a government, that's like highly like, um, you know, you have to write a really careful proposal. It's a highly competitive thing to get across, to get over the line. So in, in many ways, there's more, more rigor is on the government funded research. I've never, if they all have their different, all the different strands of funding, whether it's crowdsource, uh, philanthropic money from, you know, individual or, or, you know, small numbers of donors, uh, family offices, uh, those types of things all the way through the government. I've never really thought about it that way, but they all introduce their own selection bias on certain personalities yeah. and certain entities and certain uh, sort of, uh, you know, areas of research are going to do better in one than the other. And like anything, it's like it needs a, sort of like a heterodox sort of field of funding so that you can trust the results that are that are that are coming out. Yeah, um, I agree. So I, I agree. think like yeah, hopefully that there's a sort of startup phase that is not over and the money's still very welcome. It's not like if someone yeah, rocks yeah. up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I think it was necessary for all the for it to be this way, right? To get everything started. Uh, but hopefully, we'll start to transition into more traditional funding models. It's probably it's probably introduced a type of uh, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but a type of internal competency in organisations that maybe didn't have to be particular. Like, okay, they had to be rigorous, but all of a sudden they've had to be lateral and innovative and more media facing and and created a type of um, a different type of hustle that I think will serve the, the whole field very well in the future because there's maybe given a bit of scope to an, an entrepreneurial spirit in people who previously thought they didn't have a, you know, an ounce of that in their whole body. Like I see a lot of people out there being very successful at, at gaining money that um, they wouldn't have had to had they, got, had they been able to just write a grant and be quite sure they were getting money. So it's a hard path to walk, but it, it, every hard path you walk teaches you things that you, you, you learn, you know, that can, can benefit you down the road. Um, I'm very conscious of your, your, your time. Nice to, uh, where would you direct people if they're interested in your work? Um, my laboratory group has a Facebook page. Uh, that's just like where we, uh, it's the, uh, the Auckland Neuropsychopharmacology Research Group. That's where we kind of update sort of public kind of posts about what we're doing. Uh, but I'm, and, but people can just, uh, <laughs> research participants please don't get in contact with me oh god <laughs> too many emails about that uh, yeah. but you know but potential donors and stuff can just reach out to me directly yeah. sure. or, okay, or, well, or stuff like that it's yeah 
I will be I will be sort of saying anybody that, that made a few quid in the main in various mining booms in your part of the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we have like crowdfunding page and stuff as well. Uh, for, okay, well, I'll I'll make sure to link link to that. So yes, yeah. it's been a real um, pleasure. Thank you so much for oh, being here. Pleasure's so mine. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat. I'd just like to say thanks again to Suresh for being so generous with his time. If you'd like more information on any of the things that me and Suresh talked about, just simply go to mindmanifestpodcast.com and in the podcast section you're going to find all the links to everything we've talked about and there are also links to subscribe to the podcast. It would be a great help if you could share this with friends and family who you think might be interested and I'll be back soon with some interesting chats with more focusing on therapists coming up as we've sort of delved a little bit deeper into the research side of things. So until next time, take care.